of you who are guests, if you'd like to have a Bible to follow along, our ushers can obtain one for you and give that to you. Just lift your hand up and to keep it up, they'll see you and uh, we'll be glad to um, have you follow along. Keep your hands up high if you need a Bible. Romans chapter 4. This week and next, we will be covering all 25 verses of this chapter. And we're going to be able to go through this chapter a little bit more quickly than chapter 3, simply because it is an illustrative example of what we've been discussing in chapter number 3. All that simply means is that chapter 4 is a story about an Old Testament character that received the gospel and understood Jesus Christ just like we did and was saved the exact same way as we are today. I want to do something a little bit different, though, this morning. I'd like to read all 25 verses to begin. I, I typically don't do that if I'm going through an Old Testament text, particularly a, a longer Old Testament narrative. Um, we'll take moments before the preaching to read through that whole text, but this morning we're going to do it at the beginning of the sermon uh, so we'll understand a little bit of a, a context before we head into today and then conclude uh, chapter 4 next week. All right, so join me, if you will, Romans chapter 4 and verse 1, and let's find out exactly who uh, this passage is going to discuss in the first couple of verses together. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found, and I'm going to make some editorial comments as we move through uh, this chapter to help our understanding. Um, apparently, uh, there were uh, members of the Church of Rome who were born again, who understood the gospel, but were still attempting to learn more about it. Now remember, uh, the, the people of the Church of Rome we're not in any spiritual trouble. Remember, God's going to prepare them for some physical affliction to come. But they're not in any spiritual trouble. But in this church are people who were irreligious and religious before they came to know Christ as their Savior. So the religious element, the formally, should I say, the formally religious element apparently has been asking some questions that Paul is going to address throughout this whole chapter. And he's basically going to be answering these questions for all people who grew up in any religion that taught that good works could get you to heaven. Can we just say that? He's going to speak from the testimony of Old Testament Jews, but really he's answering questions on behalf of everybody that grew up in a religion that taught that you could be right with God through doing good works. Does that make sense? So maybe that helps. He's asking, so these are people that are asking about their forefather Abraham in the flesh. In other words, they grew up this way. They grew up in this environment. And uh, he says four, verse two, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scriptures say? Abraham what? 
believe God. Cross-reference in the margin of your Bible there, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as what? That's it. That's it. That's the primary question and the first and primary answer to the most primary question that we're going to see a few of here. Was it according to works? Nope. Because if it was according to works, he'd have a lot to brag about. Wouldn't you say that Abraham would have a few things to brag about compared to us? Come on, people, really. <laughs> I mean, the most romantic character outside Moses, maybe, David in the Old Testament. It's what's really interesting to me in the remainder of this chapter, we're going to see these characters of the Old Testament mentioned. The people that we would think were all of that in the Old Testament still came to Christ by way of the same manner you did and same method you did, right? So Abraham believed and he was saved. Verse four, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. All he's basically saying there, when you go to work, you do a job and you deserve to get paid. If you didn't get paid and your direct deposit didn't slip into that account um, when it was supposed to, and you're writing checks based on what you assumed was direct deposit in your account, you're going to be in trouble pretty quickly. What the Apostle Paul's saying here is we're born again the exact opposite way that you work and you get paid. Someone else did all the work for you. And in Jesus Christ, you find your way to God and receive all the blessings that are Christ's as the Son of God. Right? Let's look at David. Just as David also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom God does what? Credits righteousness. I believe we're going to see that phrase some 11 times, credit or reckon, in this chapter alone. But here we have Abraham who's been credited with Christ's righteousness, God's righteousness in Christ, now the same for David. And David even says this. I believe this is taken from Psalm 32. Blessed are those who lawless, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will what? Not take into account. That's the reality of someone who's been eternally credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're going to see this again at the end of the chapter. Our lawless deeds are not in view of our God after we come to Christ. It's a pretty amazing motivation to continue to live for him, isn't it, folks? All right. Verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So now Paul's addressing this question that's very clearly made. Is this blessing, this credited righteousness, on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? All right, so Abraham knew this blessing as someone who was circumcised. But what about the Gentile? 
What about them? Can they have this righteous, this righteousness accredited to them? And this is his answer. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Why did Abraham get the righteousness? Because of faith. And remember how we closed the service last week. What does faith include? It takes all this understanding of the method of how someone comes to know Christ. And we understand it intellectually. It moves our hearts emotionally. But then we surrender our will. The I do moment. Yes, I do, Lord. I believe. And therefore, I receive the righteousness of Christ. Is this good for everybody? Well, sure it is. How then was it credited? Another question. While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. This is what's amazing. Religious people always hang on to their good works to get him to heaven, but he's using Abraham as the primary example in this text. And what people forget is, Abraham was circumcised some 14 years later after he was converted. Genesis 17 is some 14 years after Genesis 15. He's been in and imputed with the righteousness of Christ by God at the moment he believed. So, what does that tell us? Are you ready for this? Did you know that Abraham was a Gentile before he was a Jew? So that's how Paul answers this question. What about the circumcised versus uncircumcised? This righteous is good for one and not the other. And Paul's saying, hey, look, the only thing that was on the earth before there were Jews were all Gentiles, and Abraham was one of them. He wasn't a Jew by right, until he received the circumcision, which was a sign of a promise that God gave to Abraham by faith. So, is righteousness available to all men? <laughs> Absolutely. And the, and the religious people who do all the good works, I love you. You're kind of wasting your time. Someone's already done all the work for you. And this work outdates any of your religious work, predates. <laughs> and even predated the religious work of Abraham. All right. Well, right. I hope that didn't come across harsh. Because many of you are my friends that grew up in religious systems and some are watching by live stream this morning that grew up in religious systems and my friends religious work that's done and performed with the hope of gaining acceptance with God and life eternal right. um, are not investments in eternity And may every religious ear hearing be willing to understand the simplicity of this text. Because your life eternal depends on it. Verse 10 again, how then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. It's Genesis 15. And he received the sign of circumcision 
14 years later, a seal, not an, ad, not an additional matter that was needed for his conversion. He was already reckoned right, or credited with the righteousness of Christ. He received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. So what's a seal? You may have another word in your Bible that says something else. Can I tell you what circumcision was for Abraham? It's very similar what baptism is for the New Testament believer. We're already born again before we get baptized, right? But that baptism is a sign that we have identified ourselves with Christ's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We died to sin just like he died for sin. And we were raised together in Jesus Christ. And when we trust him, we have power over sin. So it no longer has reign in our lives. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Circumcision was to become... Listen to this, was to become, it was intended to be a sign of external of what had taken place internally in the heart. Always remember that. For all religions of all time, if we do religious work, it was only to come after faith alone in Jesus Christ, by grace alone. That's James chapter 2. Religions for a millennia time, regardless of their title or regardless of their leaders, that's what God had intended. Faith, then works, not works, then faith. The sign was just to say, you know what? Abraham's already a recipient of righteousness. And as a father of a nation, wasn't that a great reminder to all those who would be commanded to be circumcised on the eighth day. The hope was what? Circumcision was just an external act that was to describe what should happen in the heart in time when someone comes to know Christ. That's why the prophet could say that those who he was preaching to that would not listen, he was preaching to people of uncircumcised hearts. They did not have tender hearts. Right? He goes on here. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, though so that he might be the father of all who, what? Believe. Believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So long before God called Abraham to be the father of a nation politically and religiously, he called him to be a spiritual father of all those who would be accredited with the same righteousness. For the promise to Abraham... Verse 13, or as to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And we would all understand that, right? 
Clear back when God's giving Abraham the promise that he looked up at the sky. Remember at night? See all those stars, Abraham? Your descendants are going to be as many as the stars of the heavens. Innumerable. And he was not talking about the Jewish nation. When we read that context, we often think, wow, there's going to be a lot of Jewish people born. But that's not what God was saying. He was first anointed to be a spiritual father, a spiritual representative of what it meant to be born again long before the father of a political or religious nation. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made useless or void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. What he's saying in verse 15 is very critical. The law was given to us to remind us that we can't keep it. The law was given to us to remind us that all of us are lawbreakers. And wherever there's a broken law, there's going to be discipline or punishment for that broken law, right? It isn't any human law. You break the law, you're going to get in some degree of trouble for it. But what does he say for those who have been credited with the righteousness of God? Even after you're credited with that righteousness, there's no violation. It is impossible for God to look at you as a failure on any particular day even if you failed. Wow. I mean, I wish I could say something more intellectual than wow, but wow. If the law did its job and proved you a lawbreaker so that you turned in repentance from your sin and looked to the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ, And God credited you with his righteousness in that born-again moment to the point, from that point forward, for the rest of your life, even if you failed on any one given day, there is no violation. Amen. <laughs> That's just... I'm, I'm, I'm quiet here because I'm still contemplating this myself for me, Tim Potter. Do you know how many days I live? Almost an abject depression? Because I fail? I, maybe you're the same way. I don't know. Days on end. So, well, Pastor Tim, you're always smiling. I, I smile because I know I have this hope and this joy. It doesn't mean I'm not struggling in my heart. Right? Days on end. But it's truth like this that straightens me up. Amen. And gets me back thinking the way God thinks of me. So I'm not walking around as this victim all the time of my circumstances. Verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith, or literally, for this reason, by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Remember, something given to us that none of us deserve. You can't deserve it because you haven't worked for it. 
so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, spiritual descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is what? Father of all of us, not nationally, but spiritually. Now think about what this was doing to the Messianic saints in the church of Rome. Paul is basically saying here, the only thing that makes you special in this body is Christ's righteousness. Not your history. Not your nationality. Not your culture. I was having some, a talk with some friends of mine recently, and, and um, some of them have Spanish-speaking churches attached to their church, and it's actually been quite a dilemma. It's become a dilemma that they could not have ever have thought it would be. Because folks who are um, of our grandparents' age, who are immigrants from Mexico or Latin America, they come to the United States and they know no English. So all the rage was, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, let's start Spanish-speaking churches. Well, we're a few generations past that original group now. All second generation Spanish-speaking people are bilingual, and many third generation grandchildren don't even know Spanish unless they're taught it in school. So what do we do now? So on the same property, in the same hour, we have most of the people on the site are able to hear and speak English. Now, this isn't a pro-English, pro-Spanish thing. That's not my point. What makes them special or unique is no longer that they're Spanish people speaking one language. What makes them special and unique is that they've been credited. Remember, 11 times in this text, credited with a righteousness that's not theirs. So when we come on this property together, we don't see skin color. We don't recognize and respect culture. We don't have to anymore. What's most important is that we have been labeled with the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we say yes, we desire to be a multinational church. What does that mean? We desire everyone, regardless of race or creed, to be a descendant of our father Abraham. Everybody. So anyways, I did say I was just going to read through this and highlight it. I apologize. We're just, we're just kind of doing something a little different here today, I guess. Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I, what? That's a pretty powerful statement. Not that I offered to you or that you would obtain, I made you that. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. I find this really interesting. Now we know that, that, that Abraham also became a father of a great physical nation too, right? That still exists today. We know that. But he uses some language here that's pretty powerful. Right? I mean, Abraham and his wife are pretty old. 
and they don't have a descendant yet physically. We could all say that if we tried to procreate at 86 and 99, we would say that those elements of ability to procreate were what? Eh, pretty dead. It ain't going to happen. They're dead. Right? I don't mean to be disrespectful at all, but I'm saying that's exactly what God's saying here. And what he's saying here is, if I can make your dead soul live, Genesis 15. Abraham, don't you think I can make a body I created work again? It takes a whole lot less power to make your body move than it does to transform your soul. So it gets even better. Verse 18, in hope. In hope, against hope he believed. We'll study that next week. So that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he had spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body not as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. There it is. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. And those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification or for our justification. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. Let's take this passage this morning and, and break it up into several sections. And we'll finish next week. All right? Verses 1 and 2 is somewhat of an introduction to the whole text, raising the initial question and giving the initial answer. Our first major section we find in verses 3 through 12. So if you're taking notes this morning, we'll call this section verses 3 through 12, our righteousness by faith, not works. Our righteousness. We're not going to call it just the righteousness that Abraham enjoyed, right? It's ours. Our righteousness by faith and not works. The second major section of our passage is found in verses 13 to 16. Verses 3 to 12, and then verses 13 to 16. Our promise, our promise is by grace. Our promise is by grace and not through keeping the law or by good works. And finally, verses 17 to 21, our progeny by faith, our spiritual descendants, our progeny by faith, verses 17 to 21, and verses 22 to 25, we're going to handle as our conclusion to this chapter, just like verses 1 and 2 
were our introduction. Okay. Harry Ironside, you may know him as the former pastor for quite a few years at Moody Church in Chicago. He was on vacation. I read this story recently in a volume uh, that I was enjoying. He was on vacation and he and his wife decided to go to church in town where they were vacating. And they went to a particular Sunday school class that morning before the morning service. And he sat down and uh, the teacher was talking about how people are saved. How do people get saved? In the Old Testament. That was the particular question. How do people get saved in the Old Testament? One student raised their hand and said, well, of course, by deeds of the law, by keeping the law. And the teacher of the Sunday school said, that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. Well, Ironside was a bit grieved when he heard the teacher's approval of that statement and he sheepishly raised his hand and he was noticed and he said well doesn't the Bible say that by deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified and the teacher said you're absolutely correct <laughs> that's exactly what it says <laughs> so the story goes on as Ironside tells it he asked the question again, how are people saved in the Old Testament? And another student in the class raised their hand and said, well, by bringing sacrifices to God. And the teacher said, well, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> Ironside again sheepishly raised his hand. And he says, well, doesn't the Bible say that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin? To which the teacher said, you're absolutely correct. And kind sir, apparently you're more prepared for this lesson than I. Would you like to teach it? <laughs> and so he did. That's what a gracious spirit with a little bit of truth will give you. Always remember that. A gracious spirit, not an antagonizing argumentative, debating spirit. A gracious spirit, morseled with truth, will always give you opportunity. Right? And he taught. The truth is, the way to God in Christ has never changed. That's what Harry Ironside was saying. The way to God in Christ has never changed. It's been the same way for all dispensations of human history. So if it was the same millennia of years ago, it's the same today. All of you, regardless of your culture, regardless of your background, your heritage, we all come to God through Christ the same way. But you have to choose to do that. Have you ever talked to a person from a strictly religious family about what it would cost them if they were to be born again? I mean, a deeply strict religious family, what it would cost them? Have you ever led someone to Christ who actually experience being ostracized from their family? Our church secretary was Donna Grenier for years. Some of you were as well. Well, this is what my family has always been. This is what we've always honored. 
These are the traditions that we've always done. Pastor, you don't understand how deep these cultural roots run. Do you understand that my parents will disown me? Do you understand my family will not want me for Christmas and Easter anymore? Do you understand? My friend, the, the time that your family has lived on this earth and the religious traditions that they've enjoyed and have become time-honored in their lives still pale in comparison as far as length compared to this transdispensational offer of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. There's nothing old about your religious practices. There's nothing new about them. There's nothing that's new to man, regardless of your history and your tradition, regardless of the name on the church that you grew up in, or your last name that's on your birth certificate, and the traditions that they honor, regardless of all that. God has only always seen two kinds of people on this earth, those who know God through Jesus Christ and those who don't. You have to understand that. Long before religion was established, God's viewed mankind the same way. And can I say, he has uh, profoundly kept this story so simple. So simple. You know, there are Chinese churches full of Chinese people that only speak Chinese and English. And there's English-speaking churches within their communities that believe the same thing. I believe we'd even talked sometime before about Messianic Jews getting together and, and having their own church because this is our history, this is our culture, we all get one another. So could you imagine that? On the same street in 306, having a Spanish-speaking church full of English-speaking people having a Jewish church full of English-speaking people, and having Grace Church all on the same stretch between here and, here and Route 2. You know what Paul would say to those three groups of people? What in the world are you doing? Why in the world would you even remotely honor your culture and your history when I've brought you together as one in Jesus Christ? And folks, he's answering this question to Messianic Jews who were part of the Church of Rome. And they were asking these honest questions. And because there's no vitriolic uh, response or no, no, no criticism at all, Paul's speaking to people that were hearing with teachable hearts, saying, okay, yeah, I get, oh, wow, really? Boy, it had been a long time since I thought about that Abraham was actually saved 14 years before he was circumcised. So this works thing doesn't have anything to do with it, does it? Oh, wow. And that became the glory that was in the church of Rome. Unity in Jesus Christ. Right? And because of that unity, right, Paul didn't even have to come and visit them. He had never met these people, remember, when he wrote this letter to them. He'd never met them. And he says, I want to come and see you, but I don't want to stay long because I'm going to go out and you're going to help me take the gospel to other religious people who are in Spain so they can hear that 
Salvation only comes through Christ alone as well. All right? Now, you have the outline for next week. Wasn't that nice of me? <laughs> There's a little bit of an overview of where we're going to camp out for the rest of the week next week. All right, let's pray together.